0: Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain, and most importantly, help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS combined charities page, or other charities such as Shelter or local charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 13 of Have We Got Planning News for You. My name is Mary Cook. I'm a barrister and partner at Town Legal, and it's my great pleasure to host this evening's episode, which, as usual, will last about 50 minutes. Thank you all so much for joining us, whether you're watching this live or whether you're catching up on YouTube later. This 13th week feels like a victory for common sense. Boris, Rishi and Trump all started wearing masks for the first time in public. The accident-prone Grayling didn't get the chairmanship of the Intelligence Committee. And the government has made a special announcement designed to protect theatres and nightclubs should they be forced to close during COVID-19. But in particular, we welcome the South Oxfordshire's local plans resume, resuming this week and um, we hope, I I hope that the directors of this show will share with you a very special photograph for which we thank the examination inspector Jonathan Bohr because he's given us his special consent to share these photographs live. So this is breaking news (laughs) here first and there you have A picture of Inspector Jonathan Boar, who is responsible for the South Oxfordshire Local Plan examination, so well done to him. (laughs) We have another packed show tonight and we are delighted to welcome as our very special guest tonight, Sue Manns, President of the Royal Town Planning Institute. Before we start, Can I just mention the usual three reminders? First of all, please provide some questions uh, and your comments on the Q&A function, function, and thank you so much for those who've already started to do that. We really welcome your comments, even if it's just about the appalling music that sometimes gets played on this show. (laughs) May I once again reiterate our usual encouragement to make a donation, whether it's to the NHS or your own preferred local charity. Third point, please visit our LinkedIn page where there will be uh, links to the recordings of earlier shows, should you have missed those. And in more breaking news, can I say that this episode is going to be posted within the next 24 hours on our very own Have We Got Planning News For You website, which we are very proud to launch. And our special thanks go to Paul Tucker and all of his family, because this is a family show. that they've given us. Now as our regular viewers will know, we are one panelist down this week as Charlie is on paternity leave but again in breaking news I'm proud to tell you that there is another member of the Banner household. A beautiful son Michael was born this morning and I'm sure you would want to join us in wishing them all well. So before I invite my regular panel to introduce themselves I'd like to start with our very special guest Sue because you might be wondering um why I'm wearing this hat (laughs) yes (laughs) Yes. I would (laughs) like Sue to to first of all say hello uh, tell us where she is speaking from and what she's drinking and what please is the special theme of the evening thank you Sue
2: Thank you, Mary. Right. Well, the special theme probably comes through not just from the Peaky Blinders hat, but also from the, um, the football wear that Sasha and Chris are, are displaying. Now, the theme not quite sure where Paul's gear fits in, but I'm sure that Ah. might come out. The theme is Birmingham. Uh, That's where my family is from. And I'm I'm dialing in from just north of Birmingham at the moment. Now, before I show you what I'm drinking, I'm just going to explain to those listeners the relevance of Sasha's Arsenal top and Chris's Aston Villa top. And I will show this. I don't know if you can see that on the camera. But it is ticket for the 2011 Cup Final in February when Birmingham last, were the last team to lift the uh, Carling Cup from the city and we beat Arsenal 2-1. Uh, I think a couple of years later Villa lost to Arsenal so... Um, Go <laughs> back to team. But anyway, <laughs> in terms of a drink, then there's only one drink that I could possibly uh, offer tonight. <laughs> and it is the very, very well-named man's brown ale. Fantastic. Chris, where are you
1: and what are you drinking?
3: Hello, Mary, I absolutely love your hat. That is absolutely fantastic. (laughs) Um, I am at an inquiry, uh, and uh, the inquiry this time is being held in the offices of Ridge, who insisted that I do that, um, and uh, for a site in Ledbury and uh, i am drinking um, hell's beer which is from a brewery just south of birmingham in ulster and can i just say i am genuinely a huge neil diamond fan i absolutely love that i saw him in the indoor arena in birmingham uh i don't know if that dates me a little bit but um he was much better than paul mccartney uh, at the olympics uh, even though he's pushing 70.
1: Ooh. paul where are you what are you drinking
0: uh, well, I, I'm in Lancashire, Paul Tucker from King's Chambers. Uh, in terms of the Birmingham theme, I, I support none of the Birmingham teams. Uh, however, I am very fond of Birmingham uh, for this reason. Uh, it's the home of Cadbury's chocolate. And very good. for this reason, it's the home of where Bird's Custard came from. So two completely glorious things that have come out of Birmingham. Uh, I tried to find a, a beer from Birmingham, and Birmingham's always had issues in terms of how it promotes itself. Uh, so Marston's is the brewery I've gone through. It's just slightly north up in Wolverhampton, <laughs> and they're brewing, they're currently brewing American Pale Ale. Mm-hmm. That's excellent piece of branding, mm-hmm. but I'm not drinking that. I thought I'd have to drink something for Charlie. So I've got a choice <laughs> of two. I'm going to start off with Toast and then I'm going to have Little Angels. So I'm going <laughs> to well Toast done, well Little done. Angels Very for good. Charlie.
1: <laughs> Very good. And last but by no means least, Sasha.
0: Yes, good
4: afternoon, Mary. I'm in London and hence I'm wearing the Arsenal shirt and I wanted to just say very, very quickly to all those Liverpool fans out there, your side took a hell of a beating last night and I'm not going to go back to the 2011 Carling Cup final on Koscielny. It's cock up, I'll forget about that. It's taken nine years to forget about it and I'm just about doing it. And I just wanted to say, I love Chris's top. I'm old enough to remember Peter Wiv shinning it off his shin to win the European Cup in that shirt in 1983.
3: Only five teams, English teams, have done that. Aston Villa is one of them.
1: (laughs) Well, now, Sue, before we get down to business, let me just say, please do chip in uh, whenever you feel uh, it's appropriate. But we look forward to discussing community engagement with you later on in the show before... uh, Chris conducts the interview so onward and upward as they say and on to our first key planning case of the week and it's over to you Paul to talk about the Liverpool Open Spaces case.
0: Uh, Yes this is a a decision uh, of the Court of Appeal this week Um, uh, the details of the case and uh, links to it will be on our LinkedIn page and our website Uh, and it's a case which has dominated my life for some considerable time it's a case uh, where Redrow got planning permission from Liverpool City Council on land owned by the City Council uh, some considerable period of time ago for 39 dwellings. It's on land that was designated as Green Wedge in Liverpool's very, very recently adopted UDP from 2002. Uh, and it was within an area known as Calderstones Park. Um, the development within open spaces within Liverpool is particularly contentious, and an organisation known as the Liverpool Open Green Spaces uh, Society challenged that permission. Uh, so it was partly development on a former council depot, so a brownfield area, uh, partly on a disabled uh, uh, riding area, and also partly within the setting of a listed building which had been used as a care home, but all within the park, but all within Calderstones Park. Um, it was one of those cases where if you read the judgment of Mr Justice Kerr in the High Court, you'll see that a multiplicity of uh, challenges were, were raised, a whole series of grounds. Two of them hit home. So in the High Court, Mr Justice Kerr quashed um, uh, uh, the permission on two grounds one of which was a misunderstanding of the statutory test under Section 66 of the Listed Buildings Act uh, as to how you treat the setting of a listed building and the impact on the setting of a listed building. Uh, And he did that by a slightly uh, roundabout way because he concluded that because there had been a response from the Conservation Officer to object to the application, which wasn't explicitly reported to members, that that evidence that there had been a failure to take account of the duty. It's a bit odd. Um, and he did that because it wasn't a ground of challenge that the council had failed to take account of a material consideration which would have been the better way to have put it and never quite understood why it wasn't put that way but more importantly there was a challenge on the basis that the council had misunderstood policy OE3 which is a green wedge policy which protected the predominantly open character of the green wedge and the challenge was the council got it wrong in law because in fact they should treat it as de facto green belt policy Mr. Justice Kerr, um, well, i say this because I lost in front of him. Mr. Justice Kerr fell for that argument. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, Liverpool City Council weren't very happy about it because then they had to apply all their green wage policies as if they were Greenbelt pending an appeal. Um, they decided not to sell the land to Red Row. So Red Row fall away. They're no longer on the scene. And they also commit that they're not going to bring forward the development of the site. So Red Row is never going to do it. Liverpool says we're not going to sell the land. So it's not going to be developed. But they have this problem with a policy which is overly strict in its interpretation. Uh, Now, normally the courts won't entertain strictly academic claims. So we appealed to the Court of Appeal and our first hurdle that we had to get over was to convince the Court of Appeal that this was not an academic case or it was an exceptional case to to hear, notwithstanding it had academic consequences. Um, If if there's any importance in this case, it's that. Because if you get an adverse decision, local authority or private sector which misinterprets a, a, a policy or has something of wider interest, whatever the consequences might be for the site in question, there is the possibility of taking it and arguing that it has wider consequences. Well, the Court of Appeal agreed with that because uh, there's lots of green space, lots of green wedge within Liverpool. And also, it will be remembered, it's the Liverpool Open Green Spaces Society that were doing the challenge. Um, Well, Lord Justice Limblom listened to the argument and and accepted that on heritage grounds, uh, Mr Justice Kerr got it right, but accepted that it, it, it should be heard and concluded that Mr. Mr Justice Kerr had got it wrong and that you shouldn't treat a policy which talks about predominantly open character being protected as if it should be green belt. And that's important because you've got green wedge, green space, green long uh, policies all over the country and you should not be treating them as de facto green belts. Th- those are the important points from that case in my view. It's also nice to get a win.
1: (laughs) Indeed. Thank you very much. Chris, what's your take on that?
0: Well, I think uh, if I may say so, Paul
3: did very well. It hurts me to say that about any (laughs) case, but uh, he did very, very well. Uh, It includes this line from the Court of Appeal. In my view, Mr. Tucker's submissions have force. Well, what advocate doesn't want to hear that, frankly? Uh, You did exceptionally well, my friend, in terms of persuading them that it wasn't academic. Uh, I agree with you. I think that's most impressive. And that's uh, paragraphs 5 to 11 for the lawyers watching. Um, This case has wider implications, though, because um, we now know, don't we, in the MPPF, that um, those policies where the presumption is disapplied is a closed list so, um, you need to fall within that category, uh, which includes green belts. And any arguments that really what you're looking at is a green belt policy may be used to try and disapply the presumption. That's certainly what happens in London when people try to, or local authorities try to argue that their metropolitan open land policy is a green belt policy and therefore the presumption should be disapplied. Now, what has been looked at here is focusing on the words of the policy, and um, and, and Paul has persuaded the Court of Appeal that um, in it's very important to look at the wording to see if phrases like very special circumstances are in there, and if they're not, as here the Court said, well this is not akin to a green uh, belt policy. So it's a very good win for Paul, and um, well done, mate.
2: Thank you very yes, much Chris. Chris. So
1: now we move on to planning cases of the week and the first one is taking us to Devon and Sasha it's over to you.
4: Yes thank you very much Mary. I'm going to talk about a case that involved a residential development in Clompton in Devon um, where you and I Mary have had various battles in Devon not Clompton but we've met each other in Plymouth. Now this is a case for 105 houses and the noteworthy factors in this case are first of all Taylor Wimpey chose to have the matter determined by written reps which obviously shows how the world has changed in the sense of going to a written reps appeal dealing with 105 houses the second point i wanted to say it's noteworthy that the council went against the officer recommendation and which was for approval and refused it on the basis that there would be highways impact and what is noteworthy is the inspector you know how it's the kind of classic advocate's point to say well the officer recommendation was for approval, how come the members went against that? In this case it's noteworthy because the inspector clearly takes that into account in reaching a view on the first reason of refusal that both the officers recommended approval and in the, the, the Devon County Council's Highway Authority also didn't have a concern about a single access which would feed the development. So I I think that's noteworthy, that basically before members impose reasons of refusal, you've got to get through to them, which frankly most officers do try, that there's got to be some substance to try and make a credible case at appeal. The other factor, which is important, is affordable housing and the unilateral. Charlie obviously advised to do a Banner-esque tactic which was there were two UUs submitted, one that offered 20% affordable housing and one that offered 35%. And it's interesting that Neil Pope, the inspector, took the view that the 20% was not one that he would take into account because it wasn't policy compliant and in not being policy compliant he reached the conclusion that it wasn't fairly and reasonably related in scale and kind to the development applying regulation 122. So the takeaways for those who are interested is of course for those working for LPAs is however hard do try and get into members minds that they can't just pluck reasons of refusal out the sky they need to try and find some substance to it and the second point of course is don't frankly probably try and play tricks with what your UU offers unless you can really justify a lower amount personally and I do say this I don't want to take advantage of Charlie in his absence but Offering a twenty percent and a thirty percent, UU. yeah. I won't. I won't go far. <laughs> I, Char- I
1: think Charlie's perfectly capable of looking after himself when he comes back, and I'm sure we uh,
0: have. Absolutely. Left. Paul, we- over
1: to you. Have you? What's your comment?
0: Yeah, well, a couple, couple of things. Uh, yeah, the banquet goes to this particular feast. Is obviously Charlie Banner, uh, and as <laughs> Sasha said, Charlie advised on this one, and it went to written reps. Um, I've got to give a shout out to Tony Garrett, amongst those who have responded to our Q&A's, who is actually sitting in Columpton now. Mm. As a Yorkshireman, there's lots of places that I actually don't believe exist. Chipping Camden, Ascot Under Witchwood, and Columpton (laughs) has got to be one of them. I really don't believe it exists. And Tony, you're probably sitting in Wolverhampton even as we speak. Um, But a couple of things from this case, uh, the first of which is that there was a partial costs award uh, in relation to highways because the council just couldn't substantiate its reason for refusal. An important point. And secondly, a bit of a bizarre thing in the UU, the, um, the, the, there was a, an offer to convey a parcel of land to the north of the site to prevent the site coming f- expanding further to the north adjacent to the rugby club, in effect providing consolation, I think, to prevent it ever expanding. Well, the inspector found that's not necessary. I think if you could go one stage further than that, it's not lawful. You can't include the transfer of land within the UU. It's one of the few things I remember from the notes under uh, on section 106, um, but it's very interesting to see how you should treat a UU where you don't have the opportunity to debate these things in front of an inspector. Mm. And this is the sort of case that would have um, benefited from uh, a discourse such as this. And this may be the sort of case in future where PINs might want to say, well, we're going to have half an hour of chat on the on uh, this format when we're having these hybrid appeals in future. I, um, I, those are my thoughts on it, Mary.
1: I, I agree. And indeed, it may well be that when you submit a written rep appeal, you want to say I'm happy to go written reps as long as actually uh, because this appeal involves a, uh, an obligation uh, there is an opportunity to have an oral session so that we don't fall down on the obligation. Mm. Can I, I make think- one final point Mary I just
4: wanted to bring to it's also noteworthy there was a costs application from the appellant and the inspector understandably took the view that effectively that the council had not substantiated through technical evidence or objective analysis the members' concerns. So, again, of course, that is the gateway test always to ensure that you meet that threshold. Thank you.
1: And uh, can I say, first of all, thank, thank you for all the contributions. Do keep them coming in. And how nice to, to hear the inspiration that Sue has provided to some of the people listening to this show. Uh, I think that's great. And I, I, I do a shout out for Sue. So, it's me next uh, talking about the Marston Airfield uh, DCO. The airfield in question, so this is down in Kent, it closed in uh, 2014 and they made a, 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 it was allocated uh, previously in the 2006 Thanet Local Plan for uh, airfield uses. But by the time of this most recent decision, the emerging local plan took a different tack. Having allocated in 2006 for aviation use, the council decided to adopt a neutral stance in their emerging local plan. Now, that sort of makes me think about local politicians not actually leading, um, being slightly uh, wary of growth. Um, however, I stick to my task and tell you that the application for the DCO was submitted in 2018, so it was a two year process post submission. Remember, that there is a great deal of upfront consultation work that goes on pre-DCO. Uh, it Would have gone on for at least a year, probably 18 months before they actually got to the DCO stage. So uh, the inspectors accepted it, uh, or PIN, sorry, ex- accepted it for examination in August, 2018. The inspectors were appointed in 2018. The examination began in Jan, 2019, concluded July, 2019. So that's six months or so, and the way the examination went, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about, because they had specific topic hearings. So they looked, for example, at need as as in one hearing and the operational side of it. They had another hearing specially devoted to noise and vibration. Then they had another one dealing with landscape design and heritage, and another one dealing with habitats regulation. issues, socio-economic issues, they had two compulsory purchase session hearings and then they had a couple of evening uh, sessions, open sessions uh, for local representatives. There were 2,000 written reps made um, so there was a very large amount of material, huge numbers of statements of common ground and this is a case where contrary to the recommendation of and I'm sad to say four men and I would say that, wouldn't I, after last week. Really, why couldn't we have had one woman amongst the panel of four? But this is a case where, although the Secretary of State is said to be the decision-maker, in fact, the Secretary of State, Grant Shapps, wasn't the decision-maker, because prior to his appointment as Secretary of State for Transport, he had actually supported uh, the proposition at uh, Manston for the reuse. And so this was a, d- a decision taken by the Minister in order to avoid uh, that topic of allegations of <laughs> pre-determination and bias <laughs> <laughs> can 't imagine where we 've heard that before anyway the, the The panel of wise men recommended that um, the dCO should not be confirmed, contrary to that, the dCO was confirmed, and one of the things to remember about this case was that the airport's national policy statement had no effect, so that this was not a DCO taken in the context of a relevant national policy statement, and therefore uh, Section 105 of the 2008 Act applied. And I mention this because that means that the Secretary of State has to have regard to local impact statements, uh, certain prescribed matters, and, and basically anything else that the Secretary of State considers to be important and relevant. And this is the process by which some advocate that new settlements could come forward. So it's it's particularly interesting, and that's why I've I've given you some of the um, the time, uh, information about the uh, the timescale. In this particular case, none of the local impact statements that came in from either Thanet or all the other surrounding councils actually took any issue with the question of need. The panel were not convinced on need, But the Secretary of State was completely and utterly convinced on the question of need and he gave very significant weight to the economic and socio-economic benefits locally, regionally and nationally and in particular took the view that it was critical to um, the import and export of freight and that these uh, benefits outweighed uh, harm to heritage assets. So a fundamentally different view was taken by the Secretary of State. I mean he did impose all sorts of restrictions on night flights, noise quotas, uh, limits to annual noise emissions, um, eligibility of properties for noise insulation, all sorts of things relating to technical um, mitigation in, in a nutshell. Um, but it's, it, it's interesting in a wider context I think because of the very significant weight given to the economic and, the, and, the, and what was described as the socio-economic benefits. And surely, surely I say, in a Brexit, post-Brexit and COVID-19 world, we could expect more decisions like this where greater weight is given to economic issues. Um, so that, that's, that's it from me on that case. Chris, do you want to make um, any observations in relation yes. to bearing yes, in mind
3: Yes, Mary. If excellent summary as always. Thank you very much. Um, just a couple of observations from me. Uh, we've had a comment from uh, Bridget Rosewell, friend of the show, pointing out that uh, uh, Manson has the longest airstrip in the country. Uh, trivial information, she says, but you know, nevertheless relevant. I, I, I think it's entirely the case that this is a signal. At uh, my view, this is an overturn of the recommendation by the panel to grant planning permission. And we're all looking very carefully, aren't we, in Secretary of State cases. I'm sat doing an inquiry in one, um, uh, and after reading the correspondence on Westbury, I'm delighted to know the Secretary of State won't offer any delay in issuing his decisions on Secretary of State cases. He's always very keen to get them out now, apparently. But I think this is a real signal and also, um, I spoke to Angus Walker in the, in the 45 minutes I had between the end of the inquiry and now. Uh, and Angus uh, has noted, we all know Angus watches all of these DCOs very carefully, um, to the point of obsession, but uh, he watches it very carefully and he's noticed the trend of Secretary of State overturns at Drax, at the A36 DCO, the Fanat extension, And what we're seeing is the panel or the examiner refusing, recommended refusal. And as with this, we're seeing um, the Secretary of State for Transport granting it. And I I think that's a very clear signal to the development industry. Also, a point I made about the DCO on the strategic um, rail freight interchange in the West Midlands, in the Greenbelt, is DCOs are getting a bit more sexy. You know, there's a wider range of things now. This is about an airport. It's not about a road or a bridge uh, or a power station. And so I think we can see DCOs having much wider application, which taps in entirely to your point, Mary. We must surely be heading towards something like a DCO for new settlements or something else if DCOs is considered to be too much like Transport Act uh, orders. But we're also seeing a trend in which the Secretary of State is very, very keen to grant planning permission despite what the examiners may conclude. So I think there's some really significant and important decisions there uh, that are coming through and tell us how the Secretary of State's, in this case, Transport, feel about the importance of economic development. And just one final point, you emphasize, Mary, quite rightly how much emphasis the Secretary of State here puts on economic development. It was the same in uh, the decision at the Wheatley Campus, that was a housing case, It's no longer treated as moderate. It's now increasingly treated as a significant material consideration. And I think that is incredibly important.
1: Agreed, Bruce. i uh, agreed. And... Uh, let me also just mention a, a, a bit of research that was published on this topic of uh, DCOs by barton Wilmore copper and womble Bond dickinson which is an interesting read um, and I dare say this show will come back to the topic of DCOs. Right, enough on that. Let's move onward and upward to community engagement and we're going to hear first of all um, from some protagonists who are a little cynical about the worth. of um, community engagement and Sasha and Paul are going to play that role and then we're going to hear from Chris and Sue who of course is a champion of community engagement. So, (laughs) Sasha, can we start with you please? Yes, we can. I was just, while we were getting ready I was thinking
4: what the MPPF says and of course it's kind of sacred script of government and local authorities that community engagement is a good and important part of the planning process. Well, I know Chris claps, so I'm going to put the other way. I mean, really, do we, why do we need it? I mean, seriously, I mean, how many times have we sat in cons with developers who have said, all right, we'll go through the motions, we'll get a few people in a drafting community hall on a cold Tuesday night, we'll hear what they say, and then we can tick that box and say we've done it. Of course, we don't have a blind bit of intention of actually listening to what anyone says. So the first point is it's not effective. The second point is why? Why should people have a right to say what's in the locality? Isn't it the right of a landowner, as long as there isn't material harm, to determine what their proposal is? I mean, is there actually a right to say what, to to influence developments from those that live in the vicinity of the site? It's a very recent concept. It certainly is nothing that anyone would recognise from significant times of the past, maybe some of the greatest buildings we have in our country would not have come forward if you'd had a community engagement forum <laughs> to whether you should have St Paul's Cathedral or not. People say, no, let's use it for a market, far better use of the land, etc, etc. So I know I'm being slightly facetious, but I just start with that with that bouncer in Sue's direction in the loveliest possible way.
0: Paul, are you my ally or not? Yeah, I absolutely am, Sasha, though perhaps in a slightly different way. (laughs) Um, I appreciate that you are playing the devil's advocate in that one. Um, I think there's a danger of um, public consultation actually subverting representative democracy. And representative democracy is key to our decision making in this country, which is that we don't have mob rule, we have decisions taken through the filter of those who we elect to take the time, efforts to study things, to think about what's in the public interest and to make decisions unburdened by the mob, but on the basis of their public interest consistent with their public duty. And at each level of democracy, I think we've seen a problem in terms of that over the last several years with the rise of populism. And we see it at the bottom level. We've delegated down to the lowest level of democracy to district councils, decisions which are, crucial to the economic well-being of uh, different areas And yet those are individuals that are capable of being influenced by an electorate of no more than a few hundred people Um now the athenian model is that you're elected. It's your job It's a uh, it's your to act in the public interest and you make the decisions on behalf of the community I think that we are in danger of seeing because of the level at which decisions are taken The subversion of that is that because of the influence that the mob brings to bear and by the mob i mean the gray-haired the intellectuals whereas in fact those who should be represented should be the whole of the community and we have a different difficulty in terms the disconnect between those who might benefit may not be next door and those who have an interest and i like the french i like the french not just because my mother has a french surname uh, and therefore there must be some distant link through I like the French because the idea of having uh, development in a French village is sitting down with the Maori over a glass of wine and the first question the Maori will ask will be what's in it for my community and that's the question we never ask in this country and yet it's the question that's at the centre of most people's concerns.
1: Well thank you very much Paul. Sue you've been so patient, forgive me Chris, I'm going to go (laughs) straight over to Sue because having having listened to the last five minutes she must be desperate. Come on.
2: (laughs) Where do I start yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree what, what I, the, I think the best the best way to answer it there's so much in what you've said, and I think I think the point that Paul made about diversity of views and diversity of input in community engagement is absolutely the right one and I, I know Chris has got a whole load of questions that, and I want to try and pick up on that as we go through. So perhaps rather than sort of trying to come back in one short sentence, if perhaps Chris and I work through and then at the end oh. you tell me, have I answered the questions? Because I think there's so much in what you've said. Absolutely. There's a, Sascha, I'm
0: taking that as agreement, I think.
2: No, Paul.
1: <laughs> I'm the chair here, Paul. Get back in your box. Chris, over to you.
0: Well, you know
3: what, i it's easy to say, um, when you act for developers, well, you know, we'll just talk to the locals and, and make them feel special. But actually there's an awful lot of knowledge and an awful lot of experience and an awful lot of intelligence out there that we should tap into. We don't know the answers. Um, look look at us, you know, are we really representative of the population that we are there to present? I know Paul is something of a class warrior, but um, Ursula has revealed this week where your kids went to school, mate. So um, I'm not entirely convinced. (laughs) Um, And uh, it looks nice though, I have to say. The uh, the reality is we, we need to tap into so many more people in our society and understand what they want. And I actually think that would be... The way of overcoming the difficulties of development because so often the people we don't hear from are the people who um, would most likely benefit from the development, not just the affordable housing, but everybody. But look, Mary, I'm, I've got a whole series of questions for Sue, and um, I know everybody's keen to hear what Sue has to say. So, um, shall I start with the interview? Of course. Thank you very much. Okay, now, Sue, a a little bit of an introduction. Uh, A fellow uh, West Midlander Brummie, um, Birmingham City Council for 10 years, uh, University of Central England, Senior Lecturer in Planning for 10 years. Some of your students, uh, including uh, Stephen uh, Stray, has commented uh, that how much as, 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 um, as has been said by Mary, you inspired a whole generation of people Although Stephen Stray pointed out I only got 40% in the legal module in the early 2000s, but I managed to win an appeal against Chris. (laughs) Ouch. That hurts. Thanks, Stephen. in Amber Valley, uh, but um, yeah, and you worked at Advantage West Midlands um, and Arup and Pegasus and Planning Aid, you have uh, a stellar CV and now the president of the RTPI and your real message, commitment and your focus is on community engagement, is that right? It
2: is. It is, it's a dual focus in a way, it's about diversity if I had to pull things together, diversity of the profession. Which we talked about last week but yeah. diversity in terms of the engagement that we do which i was so pleased that paul i will just remind him that paul mentioned in that uh, in his introduction can i can
3: i ask you then where are the origins of your interest in this in this topic
2: right well that, that's a really good question because my interest in community engagement has actually sort of evolved and developed over many years and you reminded me of How many years I've actually been in the profession in that introduction. But if you take a step back, and I think this is a direct answer to what Sasha was saying, is planning is for and about people. It's about the places and the spaces that they use and there aren't many other professions that actually where the decisions that we take have such a direct effect on lives. Not only those those people who are alive today, but for generations to come and so it's always seemed to me to make total sense that we should involve people in those decisions and as a youngster one of the things I used to do and I think people probably got a bit fed up of it was I was quite happy to speak to anyone and everyone because I wanted to find out about their lives and about the places they lived in and I learned so much from that that then shaped my life about for example how to move safely around somewhere and how to and trying to understand what people wanted to see change and then taking that forward as a planner it struck me that from very very early in my planning career that whilst we go out and we collect lots of technical information what we didn't do enough of was actually asking those people who lived in those areas about how they functioned on a day-to-day basis and what was important to them. All the things that people had talked to me about when I was younger. And that's really what sparked my real interest and growing interest throughout my career in community engagement about how we capture that wide range of views, how we hear the voice of local people in a positive way and an inclusive way and get under the skin of what really makes an area and a new development that goes in that area work.
3: Okay, and, and it, it, can I ask you, what, why is this important? You know, We've heard from Sasha and Paul who, are, just to be clear, have been deliberately provocative to create a debate. Um, uh, why, why is it important? Why, why does any of this matter, really?
2: Again, not, not directly hitting back at Sasha, but I do want to say <laughs> box engagement is not good enough. It does not represent good value for money, for anyone at all. But if you do early, meaningful, inclusive engagement, then it makes sense in so many ways. Um, Taking a step back and just looking at where we are now, the pandemic has shown the strength that comes from being part of a community and the importance of community networks. It's shown how neighbours have mobilised and how they've come together and used local knowledge and local resources to respond to the crisis. And as we plan for the future, we need to listen to that local voice and um, as I've mentioned before people, local people know what works and what doesn't. So why wouldn't we actually ask them about planning if they're the ones that have stepped up to the table at the pandemic stage. But in saying this, it is absolutely essential that we engage across the diversity of society. So the story, story of COVID-19 has been one of unequal impacts with the disadvantaged suffering most. Black Lives Matter has also raised the importance of taking action to ensure that all voices are heard and, quite simply, if our existing approaches to engagement don't facilitate that, then we need to change them. So I also can't agree more with what Charlotte talked about last week in terms of diversity in the profession and, as I mentioned earlier, we need to better reflect uh, diversity of society and who we're planning for. Speaking as a bit of an aside, in my role as RTPI Board Champion for Equality, Diversity and Inclusivity, I am really keen to drive forward our action plan to bring that change, but diversity, as I said earlier, is just as important within the profession as it is in terms of our engagement and with the complex issues such as those tackled by planners. It's just not possible for one person or a group of people from similar backgrounds to have all the relevant insights And as a result, decisions taken within an echo echo chamber tend to reflect the views of those within that chamber. And we feel good. I feel good when people validate my views. We feel smarter when people actually tell us what we already know. And evidence doesn't fit perceptions, then decision-makers often dismiss it. So just to sort of illustrate that, and with the football theme from the two football tops that are there, just want to remind people about the um, that painful defeat that England had against uh, Iceland in the 2016 European Football Championships. Well, why did it all go wrong? And I was listening to Matthew Said uh, some while ago, talking about one of the solutions to that. And you'll, you'll get the parallel. It involved a new group, a technical advisory board made up of people from different backgrounds. Uh, The makeup of the group was criticised by sports writers, by others within the football world. None of the members of that group were paid, but what they brought to the table were unique insights to problems. So just as in community engagement, when those that we consult with, they're not paid for their time, we take it for free. But they bring in return to the table that gift of unique insights. Now, in the case of that football advisory group, one of the members, Lucy Giles, who was the first female college commander at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, she brought insights about building mental fortitude from her knowledge of the army. And Michael Barber, who'd been head of the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit under Tony Blair, talked about turning abstract ideas into practice from his time at number 10 and really would that group have been so effective if Harry Redknapp, Tony Pulis and others had actually been involved and in the room? Loads of football knowledge but they all knew about that. What this board brought was a different way of thinking and different views and while some were rejected the process you go through of debating those views actually brings about solutions. So, just to say many people assume that others live their lives like they do but they don't even within a same family we all lead quite different lives and I suspect have different views and debates and discussions about things and just taking my family you asked them about the best football team in Birmingham I've already told you it's Birmingham City four of them will give you the wrong answer they'll say Aston Villa but we've got to think about how the outcomes and the voices that come through from engagement reflect that diversity of views and all too often it is the voices of certain groups that dominate
3: yeah and let me that's
2: a long answer
3: no, 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 let me just ask you about that before i uh, throw it open to the others which is just that you've talked about in the past about sort of buying an environment and certainly that's how the good people of ledbury uh who that's the inquiry i'm doing now um that's how they feel they don't want laws development for 625 houses and so they're opposing it even though the local authority have withdrawn from their objection so how how do we convince these people who feel they have bought an environment and they don't want any more developments in that environment
2: well best to answer that by way of an example i think really about about 10 years ago i was involved in a consultation which clearly divided a town those who'd moved into the area and it was on the edge of a national park and had effectively as you said purchased a house and purchased an environment which they wanted to continue to enjoy in that same way in aspect but their views were very very different to those who'd been born in the town and grown up there and faced the challenges of affordable housing lack of and employment if they wanted to remain so well firstly how do we know there were divergent views and that was actually through good community engagement because often you only hear from one section of, of the society there And how can those differences be reconciled? Well, the answer to me is actually through a shared understanding. So it's not just what we say in consultation, but how we say it and how we allow people to work together to explore those issues, to consider the trade-offs that have to be made and then hopefully share in shaping a solution. And this is where perhaps some of the tried and tested tools for engagement, such as inquiry by design or other co-production approaches can play a key role in that. And I think the experiences of COVID-19 have brought communities together. And that will help, I think, going forward in shaping the understanding of the needs of different groups in society.
3: Okay, thank you very much, Sue. I'm gonna ask Mary, um, do you have a question?
1: Yes, please. Sue, do you think that, the whole COVID-19 and the greater use of technology could lead to a much more diverse uh, participation in the, in the planning process. It seems to me that there's a, there's a great opportunity and we shouldn't miss the opportunity to, to sort of harness that. It's one of the good things to come out of COVID-19.
2: Yeah, I, I really do agree with you. And to me, one, well, f- starting from the first thing, one of the actions that was put in place by many local authorities was to move their planning committees online. Mm-hmm. And where that happened, there have been consistent reports from across the UK of higher levels of, of attendance at planning committee, bringing greater transparency to the decision-making process. And the success has been such that some councils, East Suffolk Council for example, now plan to continue hosting remote commi- uh, planning committees, uh, you know, going forward. So COVID-19 has changed the way many of us have used technology, and. I don't think we could actually have got through lockdown if it hadn't been for the technology that's available. Community consultation events have had to go online. So, Oxfordshire County Council recently held an online consultation event uh, in connection with the DIDCOT uh, infrastructure improvements. And that used a virtual village hall where visitors could click on boards and interactive displays and opportunities to leave questions and feedback. And all too often, pre-COVID, what we'd actually see in terms of online engagement was, PDFs of the display boards that were just put up online, but this was actually interactive. And part of being a president is I get to visit lots of places, albeit virtual this year. And uh, one scheme jumps out to me from um, my visit, and it was actually last week, and it was Boston flood barrier scheme led by the Environment Agency. And they'd use technology to allow the pilots of three different types of vessels, three different sizes. And they're up to 100 meters long, these vessels that navigate the, that stretch of water. But they, allow, they used a simulator to actually replicate reality and let those pilots feed directly into the design of that scheme. Now, doing that using technology and engaging in that way, why does that not make sense? It is absolutely what we should do. But, I agree. I, I think just one other thing I'd say, and lots of people throw it at me, if that's, if that's all right, Mary, just to say. Yeah, you go for it. You get this thrown at you that, well, what about the digitally excluded? Mm. Uh, you, can't, you can't do it all online. What about the digitally excluded? Well, the work I've been doing, it seems to me that they are largely the same groups of people who are absent from traditional consultations. So we do need diverse responses, but those groups, whether they'd be digitally excluded or excluded through other consultations, other mechanisms, we need to give them something bespoke and something targeted, whether we do digital engagement or not. But if you look at the ONS figures for 2019, we are now up there with 90% of adults having been online recently, and almost 50%, 47% to be precise, in 2019, of the over 75s are now online. So why would you not, why would you not use this technology? And just one other challenge that I, I do think that we need to think about as planners when we do engagement is if, what we do is we, we show a, a 2D plan. And we think people can interpret that and give us some meaningful feedback. Well, I don't know about you, but taking a 2D plan, turning it into 3D, and then visualizing how you're going to fit in to that plan and how those buildings relate to what's around about. I can't do it. It's not possible, but we have the technology that can do it. So why on earth don't we use it? Because actually that can overcome so many objections
3: that's a very very good point so we've got four minutes i'm going to squeeze in a couple of questions one from sasha but first of all paul
0: yeah just to pick on that last last point Sue. one of the problems is that when you do show cgi's which show what the view is from 1.4 1.6 meters looking at the eaves of a building it's disbelieved because they've seen the picture of the big building um so there is a, an issue of understanding um My question, I I was going to ask you, I sort of wrapped up in my my little discourse following Sasha. Um, So I'm just going to ask you something slightly different. Isn't one of the problems with the system that we operate, which is that by the time developers are consulting on a parcel of land for a proposal, they've already secured the interest in that parcel of land. They're already bound by what the land value is and therefore what they're able to bring forward viably on that parcel of land and that therefore local residents aren't able to influence that. Whereas at plan level, that's the point at which we should be able to have that level of influence. But our planning system in terms of plan making is, uh, well, I've used the term broken before, but problematical. So if we resolve the plan making side of things, does that improve the overall consultation because you're bringing forward allocated sites?
2: I I think you're absolutely right. It does. And if you look, I did some work recently looking at local plan engagement. And the the typical number of responses you were getting uh, to a local plan consultation was less than one in 10,000 of the population. We can and have to do better. Other cities, other countries are. Brisbane, they've engaged digitally and they've allowed people to experiment digitally online with trade-offs between density and various other things. They got uh, a response rate of one in five households still 80 percent missing but one in five households how does that compare with us and in doing that it's the understanding of the trade-offs as you increase density here you put another site there i think absolutely we need to do it up front but we still need to do the other consultation as well
3: okay sasha you got a question yes i do
4: very quickly sue obviously your your career as you've said you've been multi disciplinary in a sense of the various places you've worked. Why do you think, it from your experience, why has planning got such a bad rap with the general public? Why are people so sceptical about developments that we've talked about? Why have we failed the industry as a whole to sell people the vision that we believe in that development is generally a force of good and progress?
2: I think that probably we, we can all think of schemes that we're, we're really proud of the ones that we hold up as the exemplars and the planning awards just highlight the examples of those. But at the end of the day, I suspect most of us also know schemes that we're not necessarily so proud of. Things that, you know, it was a difficult balance as to whether it should go forward. But what we forget about those schemes where it's been a difficult balance is, well, what's the impact on the people who've got to live with it? Because they they have to live with a perhaps not top quality development. We all want the best but we don't all get it. And engagement, if people give their time for nothing and they feed in and then they get nothing back or nothing changes, then next time there's a consultation, why, why would you bother? I mean, you, you are, you know, you're giving all this to the uh, to the developer or to the planner or whoever and you get nothing back. So we can never please everybody all the time, but I think what we have to be is honest, And we have to be trusted. And I think what Paul described is a a difficult situation in terms of developers, where maybe they're passing on the land. Someone, you know, you see a scheme shaped by your comments as someone who's been engaged with, and then the land's passed on again. Why do you bother? So it's about trust. It's about honesty. It's about openness. It's about inclusivity. It's about meaningful engagement at the right time. So, uh, I,
4: I just ask you very very quickly because of the time. And I'm going to ask you off the cuff. With honesty, tell me what building would you tear down if you had the power to do so in Britain?
2: Goodness, that's a hard one. That's a really, really hard one. That's a googly. That's a googly. <laughs>
3: Birmingham Central. Absolutely can. Suppose
2: yeah. I could give you the the off uh, the, the cuff answer, which is Villa Park. But <laughs> 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 an we'll take that answer, Sue. We'll take that answer,
1: Paul. <laughs> Uh, can I, can uh, I yeah. in, quickly, paul, in the interest of time thank you very much chris by the way for a, in that that very helpful interview paul champion of the week come on yeah,
0: um I, i've got two and the second one's very obvious and i'll do the first one quickly uh praise of the week is for uh the leader of the conservative group in cornwall uh, linda taylor uh, <laughs> who dealt with a councillor called councillor jewel um who it's fair to say uh, uh and this is the the expletive version, uh, uh, gave an expletive and said, oh, for flip's sake, uh, when something was going repeatedly wrong. And this is what the quotation is. Um, she said, Mr. Dyer, bless his heart, you can't blame him. He comes from a different generation, needs more training. But he wasn't great for the whole meeting. Every time he was asked something, it took forever. It was one of those things. We all make mistakes. I thought I had it on mute, but when I realised I, realized I wasn't, I was horrified, said Councillor Jewell. And then I put my hands up. You have to take it on the chin. I'm sorry if anyone heard it. It's not what I want to hear in public. I wouldn't have said it if I knew my on my microphone on. Councillor Jewell said there were many frustrations amongst councillors, amongst online meetings, and in particular, how many applications are going to planning committee. He said, the sooner we can get back into a room, the better. A lot of these planning applications aren't being scrutinised properly, for flip's sake. Now that's the first praise. The, second <laughs> praise. the second praise is the most important, and it goes to Charlie, Tatiana, Kathleen, and baby Michael.
1: Thank you,
4: Paul. Sasha, nudge. Yes, my nudge? Sue's inspired me, and unlike my controversial protagonist position earlier, I think the nudge of the week is to all of us who work in the system to stop saying how we're not hearing from certain sectors of the population and try and get them involved, To, to like the consultation process, to break up the old modes, and Sue's been inspirational. Let's go forward with different ways, with virtual events with completely different ways to engage with people who are not heard of and frankly i think over the summer we should really think about way ways in which we can get fresh new areas of the population engaged in planning and the process so that's my nudge to us
1: thank you very much sasha so down to me then the week ahead what are we going to cover next week next week our decision it, is certainly probably going to be the Muller Property Group Secretary of State decision, which is an appeal decision issued yesterday uh, relating to East Cheshire, a redetermination case. And one of those, if at first you don't succeed, try, try and try again jobs. We're also going to turn to the subject of ecology next week and we will have Tim Goodwin with us, one of the most respected ecologists in the profession. Really looking forward to that. So it just remains for me to say thank you very much, Sue, for making time in your very busy, hectic and international schedule to join us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, audience, very much for joining us. We love your support. And may I just say on a personal note, I really appreciate all the messages that have been sent to me. Um, following last week's show, as does Charlotte. So, thank you very much. Do keep your feedback coming. We look forward to seeing you same time next week, Thursday, the 23rd of July, and check out our webpage. Good evening.
0: Good
3: evening.
1: Cheers.
0: Bye bye. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Bluebay IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.